0: If we want real democracy we will need empathy there is no real democracy if there isn't empathy
1: getting discomfortable with leave larson this summer, I attended a nine-day international intensive training in nonviolent communication. And one of the trainers was Liv Larsson. She is an educator, mediator, author, and she is a certified trainer in nonviolent communication. She's written over 20 books, including one of my new favorites, a book called Anger, Guilt, and Shame. Liev joins me today all the way from Sweden. How are you, Leev?
0: Yeah, I'm excited to be here.
1: It's so exciting for me to talk to anyone who is as interested in shame as I am. And I wonder, how did that fascination begin for you?
0: Uh, I think it began with... Well, I heard Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of Nonviolent Communication, say something like, never do anything to avoid shame, guilt, or anger. And I thought, you know, anger... Yeah, I need to learn about that. But shame and guilt that kind of had no relationship to them. And only a few years into my studies of nonviolent communication, I I actually noticed that I I was so fast at avoiding this discomfort that shame, especially shame but also guilt has, that I was I, I felt them for sure, but I avoided them. So then I got really curious. How come I avoid something that seems to be just another feeling or emotion. That's where it started for me. And then it just got better the more I learned.
1: <laughs> I can really relate to that sentiment of avoiding the discomfort of shame. I mean, that's why I call the podcast Discomfortable because I have been trying so hard to get comfortable with the feeling of shame. Why do you, why do you think it's so difficult of all the emotions to, to stick with shame?
0: Well, to simplify it, which I would need to do uh, as we're talking in this format, is to, I, I connected to the shame and fear of being excluded, fear of not being accepted, uh, fear of death actually in our, in our systems, being mm-hmm. a biological creature we are. We are connecting it so much with not, not surviving, not thriving so then we want to avoid it. That's the simple answer. There are many, many variations, but that's like the bottom line.
1: Hmm. I think a lot of people don't see that shame is this survival mechanism. You know, shame feels so objectively bad that we lose sight of the fact that it it's very specific to staying within our specific cultural group. Is, is that accurate?
0: Yeah, but the thing is that it does become bad when we it becomes bad when we avoid it it's like having mm-hmm. a piece of cheese in your fridge and you forget it and it gets it was a really good thing it was a really good cheese when you bought it but after a few weeks there a months it starts stinking and it it becomes bad so yes it does kind of slowly kill us the more we deny it the more we avoid it
1: Mhm so it's the the initial moment when we feel shame that's a very you know that's a very natural emotion but it's us trying to avoid feeling it that causes it to sort of uh fester and lurk and get stronger that's what i hear you saying
0: yeah that's my that's my take on it that it's when we have it it's this vulnerable connection to that i'm I'm at risk in some way in our relationship in in my place in the group. So it's very sensitive and very vulnerable. So no wonder we are trying to avoid it. But at the same time, when we are not embracing it and transforming it, it will become bad. It will kind of make us do stupid choices.
1: hmm. I was recently in Romania, in Bucharest, and I did a three-day course with you, which I loved. And one of the quotes that really stuck out for me was, you said, and I'm paraphrasing, if I try to get away from shame, it can last 30 years. If I stay with shame, it can last three seconds. Yeah. I think that is so true. And I've realized in my own life that I can just sort of take a moment and feel shame and it passes, but if I avoid it and, and try not to face it, it becomes this big issue that kind of plagues my whole life. And I, I'm like, oh, I'm so ashamed of this. I don't realize that shame is a, an emotion that wants to pass.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah. it's just there like a reminder. And then it will pass if we kind of honor it and notice it instead of, you know, hiding from it.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk more about what you mean when you say transforming shame.
0: Yeah, it's like I live up in the north of Sweden and I love cross-country skiing. And I can many times go directly from the house and I go out in the forest and I sometimes fall. And then the first thing that goes through my head is, I usually ask this from people when I go and I do trainings in different countries, what do you think went through my head when I fell? And most people know that, the thought one of the thoughts or the first thought is oh i wonder if someone saw me i hope no one saw me you know it's a kind of a crazy thing to think instead of thinking did i break a leg did i break my ski pole will i get home safely so it's like the risk of being seen not being perfect the risk of of not being seen as someone that carries herself with dignity we are scared of risking that because of of culture, I am so guarded when it comes to, will I be accepted? Will I keep to the norms? So then in that sense, shame also gets bad press. It it gets like a bad rumor that you, you want to avoid it. So transforming that cultural shame, that layer of shame that says, you know, keep normal, keep like everyone else, stay inside the boundaries of what normality is. And then when we transform shame, we can actually take the moments when that cultural shame uh, is trying to make ourselves smaller. We can transform it into first recognizing. This is a long answer, I realize. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's uh, first recognizing. I go for usually three core needs, which would be I recognize that I have a need for belonging. I'm a human being. I need groups I need
2: people Mm -hmm.
0: and I need dignity and I need acceptance and when I can do that transformation going from oh I should not be like I am I should be different I should be normal going to ah it's I I think that because I have those beautiful needs and then there's some choice in what I want to do do I now want to stick out or not do I now want to wear something different than other people are wearing do i want to tell about stuff that is different from what other people are telling so the transformation from the culture like suffocating toxic shame until the going to the vulnerability that's where the juice is that's where we reclaim some of that power that is lost and some of that choice that is lost in the shame
1: i love that so by seeing the needs, those three core needs that are often associated with shame, we can see that we can meet those needs in various ways. And what I'm hearing is that sometimes we might want to lean into the things that are causing shame because it's really important to us to to be honest or to be a little bit different. But we are able to deal with it because we can see I'm still going to meet my needs for belonging with the people that really matter. Does, does that accurate?
0: Yeah. And Even more so that I I am so much more daring to go both to, okay, I don't need to stick out. I can kind of try to be normal, having fun with that. And I also have so much more courage in saying, no, I want to stick out here. I want to, like you say, I want to be honest or I want to kind of speak up for things that I believe in. So I can do both. I don't have to rebel against, you know, the patterns of normality, Uh, but I might do it out of choice, but it's not out of kind of, oh, I'm going to prove that I can do it, but it's more, ah, this is important for me. So I'm going to take the risk now.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And you're touching on rebellion, and it makes me want to get into the compass of needs that you talk about in your book, which, as I understand it, are basically the the four most common reactions that people have to shame. Could you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> and i love to talk about the compass of needs because I can sit in a restaurant with someone that I kind of... Just met or with some people, and we start talking about shame. And then I say something about avoiding it. And I don't know how many napkins in restaurants I've I've tried to draw this compass. And then I get the next day or two days after I get this phone call or an email or a notice uh, message somehow. And the person says, Oh, you know, since that evening when we sat there, I realized this and I noticed that. And it seems like it gives space for people to accept that we are, first of all, feeling shame and that we all seem to kind of try to avoid it. It's become what we do with it and there's nothing wrong with avoiding it. But when we can then see that we are avoiding it and how we can kind of come back to the core, to those core needs or to the core of the compass again. So what do you say about it? Well, a compass has north and south and east and west and I would say that the north South and north axis of the compass is where when I feel shame about something, I get the question. So who can change this discomfort? Who can get me out of this shame? Where is the power that will, will move this in some way? Yes. I might go to what I call then the, the south being the part of The avoidance patterns, that is about withdrawing. That is about submitting the power and saying, no, I cannot change it. I made a mess of this. I feel shame and I'm not going to face it. I'm just going to withdraw. I'm not going to talk with people. I'm not going to tell about it. I'm not going to show up next day. I'm not going to show up emotionally or physically or mentally. I just kind of give in. I submit. I don't trust that I can change it. And many people will suffer from this. Like they have interests in life and they try to sing in front of people, for example, and they are not received in a gentle, warm way. And then they say, oh, I hate singing. (laughs) I'm never going to sing again. Or, you know, they they say, I'm not even going to listen to songs anymore. Just because it's so painful, the shame that they felt in the moment when they try to reach out and do something out of their comfort zone. So that is one, that is one very usual way to avoid shame is to really give up, kind of submit our power. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite would be to rebel. Mm -hmm. I have all the power. I don't care what other people think about me. I don't care if people are accepting me. I don't care kind of if I'm belonging anywhere. I am free, I am what I used to say, cool, calm, and collected. So I'm kind of aloof, I'm kind of above everything. So a person that avoids shame with rebellion, usually if someone kind of says to them, oh, you're too scared to do this, or you don't have courage enough to to do this, they will surely do it. Because they will rebel against anything that shows their vulnerability. Mm-hmm that risk them having shame. So they would kind of always be taking big risks when it comes to relationships, when it comes to physical survival risks and so on.
1: What I find so fascinating about the rebel reaction is that it feels sort of liberating, but actually you're being controlled by shame all the same in this sort of inverse way.
0: Yeah, it's the feeling of kind of, Freedom, but then when you look around, there is nobody around to celebrate it with you, because you kind of you give up all relationships just for you to be free, and you free from rather than free with.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's a it's a very tricky thing. I was seduced by that for many 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 years. That I kind of lived my life from that position, and it became more and more empty more and more kind of numb and lonely being self-sufficient was the highest my highest values Mm -hmm. and it's an illusion and and luckily enough we get older (laughs) human beings get eventually older so they need to have support from from others and then the earlier on in life we learn how to handle that we are in interdependence with others the less painful our becoming old will be mm-hmm. we will then just keep on asking for support and cooperation with people but we if we haven't asked for support when we're 30 it will be equally harder, or harder when we're 80 where we really will probably need it
1: and it really does seem like there's a transition that happens sometimes for people in their 30s or 40s, where they really start to get that. And I wonder, you know, some people call it a midlife crisis. To me, it seems like there's something wrapped up with the concept of a midlife crisis that is about this realization that I really do need people and I'm tired of pretending I don't.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And yeah, I do believe that many grow into seeing the values of 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 that and stop fooling fooling themselves. But not everybody.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> for some people, it it takes longer or take life takes some other turn, it seems like.
1: And then tell us about the other axis of the compass.
0: Yeah, the other axis, it's there because also when we feel shame, we usually ask who to blame for it. So we feel shame about something and... Either we ask the first question, who who has the power to change it? But on this axis, we ask, who do I blame? Who do I, whose fault is it? Mm -hmm. And on one of the axes, east or west, it would be, well, it's someone else's fault. I sing in front of people and they don't like my singing. So I feel shame for a moment. And then... I turn towards people and say, you heartless, cruel people. Don't you realize that I step out singing and I'm sensitive and I kind of scold them and I blame them. Not in a way that will support me probably in the long run with having more care and tenderness because usually angry people don't get care and tenderness and empathy because people get angry back or they run away because they feel shame then when we when we blame them, when we attack them.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So I would say anger is most often a pattern to avoid shame. It's a pattern that we use to avoid feeling the vulnerability of the, well, the moment when we had this terrible experience of some sorts. So that's one of the directions of the compass. And the opposite would be then attacking ourselves. It would be, well, it's not somebody else's fault. I am a bad singer. I did not rehearse enough. I am not uh, charismatic enough to be a good singer. I blame myself for all kinds of stuff, saying it's my fault that it went this way. So on one side, I'm attacking myself, and on the other, I attack the other. And usually... We can also turn really quickly in between the two when it becomes too much when I blame myself enough it's like I'm so full of blaming myself I might go over the shame over the vulnerability and then I go to anger and I say well it's not all my fault there's some also someone else that must have done something wrong here so that's the four different uh, parts that I usually work with.
1: What I love about the compass of shame is that you can really see yourself moving in these four directions. It's so true. And when you're aware of it, again, it brings up like, oh, I'm in shame. You know, often I don't realize I'm in shame until I notice that I'm moving in the directions of the compass. And that is such a great tool to kind of alert me. Oh, I I I must have been shamed. Like, let's rewind. Yeah.
0: I just saw in my calendar there's something I have missed to do, and it's a phone call, and I want to call somebody. I want to ask for some funds for a, a project I'm doing, a children's book that I'm writing, and I want to ask this person to to support me in this. And I realized a few few days ago that I postponed and I postponed and I postponed this call, and only when I kind of looked at it with the eyes of the compass. I realize I am withdrawing. It's because I'm worried about being shame or even thinking about it. I feel a little bit of shame and vulnerability of asking for that support. And when I see that I do that, that I kind of avoid that, then I feel like this warmth and tenderness towards myself. Even after all many, many years of of transforming shame, of course, I am still human. I am still this tender being that, yes, I want to call, but I want to make sure that before I call, I get some support in what shall I ask and how will I handle a no and how can I, you know, take care of myself. And it's interesting that I haven't noticed that i you know, I was just avoiding it, it felt like. But when I took a d- deeper look, it was, of course, shame there.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fascinating how the more you learn about shame it's not like shame goes away. It's always there. It gets, sometimes it gets even more clever or you get deeper and deeper into discovering those little places where shame is still controlling you. To me, it's just fascinating. And and it's part of kind of embracing shame instead of running from it is realizing it's it's always going to be there. It's, you know, no matter how much of a shame expert you become, you're always going to be dealing with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. It's like brushing teeth. You have to do it every day. Otherwise, your teeth fall out.
1: <laughs> exactly. Like going to the gym. It's it's an ongoing process dealing with shame.
0: Yeah. And that's what, what makes it fun, too, to kind of hold it lightly, not as, well, I'm going to do it, so I'm going to be fixed, and I'm going to be this perfect person. And then, of course, if you want to do it, fix yourself, be this perfect person, if you take a deeper look at that, usually it's because we're trying to avoid shame. Mm-hmm. We want to be perfect, to never ever step outside the perfect little thing that we're that we decided that life is. So we kind of uh, the perfectionist, the the overperformer, the all of that. There's shame layers there that we try to run away from with being this perfect non-shamed person.
1: Mm-hmm. I relate to that so hard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Me too. <laughs>
1: I really love that the compass also normalizes these reactions such that you realize, it, You when you see yourself moving in the compass, you realize how human you are. And you realize that everyone is doing the same pattern reactions, and it's really comforting in a way.
0: Yeah. When I see that, just what you said, that it's very human to do these things I can recognize that ah this person that is now angry probably they are feeling shame in the same way I feel when I would rebel or I would withdraw so I don't need to judge people for their reactions because even if I don't do these reactions as much as them if I do some other reaction I can still see their humanness and and then it's easier for me to have empathy with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. And and it reminds me of why, you know, public shaming is so ineffective. You talked about how, you know, we go into the compass, maybe we go into anger, so we shame someone else, and then they go into anger, and they shame us back, or they shame someone else. And I see the compass as so viral.
2: Yeah.
0: To communicate from the needs that we find when we when we look inside the shame, instead of staying in the reactions it's it's very it's usually very very little creativity that is born when we kind of act from those four positions
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's not like they are bad or wrong it's just really limits the potential for actually creating change or connection or something
0: yeah and the, the more we see that they are there they are they are neither good or bad they are kind of just seems to be there and and then we can kind of use them instead of blaming ourselves for using them and and keep looking for some something even more creative
1: mhm when i go into my shame reactions into the compass i'm struck by how almost robotic it is. It's like, do I want to live my life through my amygdala, through my most basic threat reactions? And, you know, it, it feels like it's my decision to get angry, like, uh, it's, it's me. But I start to see, like, it's actually a patterned instinct that's that's a bit more basic than I could be, you know, living a life that's just a lot, has a lot more options on its menu when I focus on what I really need as opposed to just falling into those reactions.
0: I have this uh, story from my son when he was around 10 and we were in some cafeteria and we were walking upstairs with each one of us had a tray. He had some drink and some, some cake and I had my coffee and something on my tray. And on the very, the, what do you say in The last step. Mm-hmm. He fell over and he spilled his drink and he, his cake fell on the, on the floor. And he turned to me like in full rage with a really angry face. He said, like, you should have warned me. You should have told me that this, uh, you know, blaming me for what he experienced. And if I would not have known about shame, I would have scolded him back. You know, it's your fault. You should look up. You're old enough. You know, get up. So it wouldn't have been a very nice uh, moment at this cafe if, if that would have happened, but I caught myself from going to the anger instead of kind of whispering in his ear, yeah, I know this is really not comfortable for you. It's kind of uh, embarrassing. Let's take our stuff and, and get something new for you to drink. And then when we sat down, I realized that, yes, I could have really blamed him back because I felt embarrassment of being a mother that got scolded that that he got angry at mm-hmm. so I had the moment of I had to catch myself make a choice not to get angry but to kind of be with him I could actually talk with him about it and I talked with him about it after you know I felt shame also in that moment when you are angry at me in public and and we had a great moment it's five years ago and it's we refer to it many times after. There was like a moment when we really, we chose connection instead of keeping on shaming each other.
1: Mm-hmm. You really highlight the importance of that self-awareness, that ability to notice before we launch into our pattern reactions and say, oh, I think I'm going to try something else. That's so important, isn't it?
2: Yeah,
0: to kind of have that sense of impulse control but with warmth and not like a constriction but as a choice
1: in your workshop in Bucharest we did a lot of exercises about how to react to people when they were in the different points of the compass and i always found that the reactions were very counterintuitive to my culture or you know what i see on tv It was always kind of the opposite of what my urge to react was. And it made me realize that there was a kind of gut instinct that it's not that I wanted to suppress it. I just wanted to have more space about how I should react. And then try to react really strategically. And once I had created that connection, just like you said, then I could be a little bit more authentic and and do some honest sharing of my own and say, you know, like, actually, I, I was quite upset, but I'm not acting out of the upset. I, I'm just sort of, I want to be clear about it, but I don't want to be overrun by it, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: yeah. I like the 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 way you put that, and it 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 is in those moments when someone else is having strong shame reacting, and then because shame is a social feeling it's it's contagious, it's not something that is limited to one person, but it's kind of a feel of us getting into the same kind of vulnerability where everything kind of is set out of place. If we are not aware in that moment, we will usually make it worse, it seems like, Mm -hmm. because the culture says this is a wrong feeling, this is a bad feeling, instead of saying, well, this is a very vulnerable feeling, this is a very sensitive moment, where we need a lot of awareness to make a good choice. And not to be, like you say, inauthentic or dishonest, but we can wait with that, we can first Also, like you said, we can first go for the connection and what will bring us connection in that moment. And then we can say, you know, I want to also be heard and how much that stirred up in me when you said that before. Are you now willing to listen to me?
1: Mm -hmm. I especially think of when someone is getting angry at me and I feel like, I want to, I want to get angry back, just like you said, or I want to get indignant. And actually, what we practiced in your workshop was giving empathy to someone who was getting angry at us, which is, it, it felt really counterintuitive to do, but it was so effective. Yeah.
0: And it's effective because the empathy, the empathic connection, the willingness to be seeing that person's humanity. Well, then then they don't have to defend that. They don't have to keep the guard up. Mm-hmm. Because we show them that, yes, I'm also going to stand on your side. You don't have to fight for it because I'm going to stand up for you as well. I don't need to give in my needs and my will, but I'm going to stand up for you as well. So then people don't need to be angry anymore. It's quite amazing. Anyone that has tried it, they will probably notice that something magical is happening. And it's, this is different for me than kind of listening with empathy is different from kind of being nice. I don't want to be nice to a person that is angry because then they probably get more angry. I don't want to be like submissive or take the blame, but I want to stand there with them. I want to stay there with them with warmth and interest for what they're going through. So empathy is not this wishy washy soft place it's the the, the very much of being there with full presence
1: mm-hmm. it's taken me a while to learn that empathizing is not the same as agreeing with someone that i can empathize with their feelings and validate that their reality is true but that i have a different perspective as well that that can coexist was kind of an epiphany for me
0: yeah and i think that that many times it does take training because we, nobody learned this in school or nobody learned this. And we learned all kinds of rhetorical, like uh, my way or your way, but we haven't practiced this to be listening. And I, I even see democracy. If we want real democracy, we will need empathy. There is no real democracy if there isn't empathy. Because for me, empathy is that willingness to stand in your shoes, see your perspective, and say, your perspective is also valid. I see how that, from your perspective, it will meet needs, it will serve life. And I have another perspective. I can see this perspective. What do you think of that? But without that empathy, uh, democracy is kind of a, it's just only in the system democracy, but it's not in us. It's not a lived democracy, I would say.
1: You're really getting to the core, as I see it anyway, of what nonviolent communication is all about. This idea of trying to meet everyone's needs, not just our own.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's a very selfish act in the sense of that I will feel much better when your needs are met as well. Because one of the greatest needs for human beings is to contribute, to create a good life for themselves, but also for others. It's nurturing me, too, when I find those moments when I can fully stand up for your needs. And I don't do it for you. I do it for us, for myself as well.
1: It really is that awareness that we're a social animal. We're we're interdependent. And I what I hear you saying is that when we really are cognizant, when we're really aware of that fact, the best practices dictate that... Lifting other people up lifts us up and, and helping them feel seen helps us feel seen. It's like what we give is so intrinsically linked to what we get that being a social animal, it's it's not about altruism. It's, it really is like helping me. It's selfish, but it's also it's selfish for the whole species.
0: Yeah. And it's a it's a different perspective than the ones we have been fed with so much that that was. Should be a good person or I should be a person that stands up for myself and wins and I should be. So it's it's like another layer of possibilities, another layer of possibility on how to live and how to be together. And every layer, I guess, we need to practice also the other things like we need to practice in some way standing up for ourselves in order to know, to trust ourselves enough. I know I will stand up for myself. So, yes, I can wait with having my voice heard and I can actually hear you because I trust myself in standing up for myself. So they're kind of interlinked. My relationship to me and my relationship to you is uh, interdependence.
1: Mm -hmm. It seems like the, you know, the poles of the compass are something that we want to touch into to some degree. We want to be available to see when we might need to have some anger and available to see when we might need the humility of knowing we've done wrong and and when we can be solitary and when we can stand up for our autonomy. But we don't want to do it mindlessly or, or do it too much or do one strategy too much. That's what I'm hearing. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah. And I even see that some people, but maybe especially women, at least here in Sweden, we have not practiced or allowed for example being angry it's not a good thing to be angry especially not at your kids and uh, that's very shameful in itself to to get angry at your kids and then you kind of stop that position so if we don't allow for all four of those positions it seems like the ones that we have left we get much more caught in them so i've told people to say you know what would you actually say or do from one of the other parts of the compass, just to get more choice? And then when people can accept that, yes, I could actually also blame someone else. Ha! Huh. That mm-hmm. feels nice. I I can't do that. Then they usually say, and I'm not going to do that, but I know now that I could. It's it's kind of magical when people have acceptance for all of this. And, and you also said an important thing, I think, with the, there are moments from being a small child and, and growing and also as adults when we need to mature into independence, when we need to kind of grasp what independence is, which is very much represented by the rebel position of the compass, where we kind of, how does that look in my life if I'm independent and even with nonviolent communication one practice is to say hold on to your need and then if you get a no to one of the strategies that you want to go for for meeting that need you go for another strategy or a third one you make one request and you get a no you you make a request of someone else or you m- make another kind of request so being Independent a layer of that is to kind of be able to hold that someone is denying of you what you want. And then when you kind of accepted both dependency as we have when we're small and independency, we can come to that mutually dependent place where we, where we have both, where they're like a dance. And they're 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 not. It's not shameful to be independent, and it's not shameful to be dependent. It's just that we kind of roll with them.
1: Mm-hmm. It seems like balance is so important here. We all have one strategy on the compass that we tend to go towards, and that's something we we might want to be mindful of. But at the same time, it shows us that there's all these other poles that we might be totally avoiding. And I I love that you can kind of see a lot of value in these other strategies as well. And I love about nonviolent communication, one of the big epiphanies for me was that every need can be met in so many different ways. There's just so much choice out there and we don't have to get all bent out of shape when our go-to strategy stops working.
2: Mm, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and there is something what you said too that reminded me of, my son is now fifteen, and he's had some years when he's uh, consciously saying things like, "Well, you know you have to say no, so I have something to rebel against <laughs> or um, you know, I am saying no now, and I don't even know if I want to say no, but it just feels so good to say no so I'm gonna say no. It's very clear that he's in his process kind of exploring that independent state which is great he is soon to be adult so he needs to know what that is about not to get caught in it and it seems like he has awareness of it already that it's not the end station it's not the place where he wants to kind of stop but he wants to explore that
1: Mm -hmm. and i loved in your workshop when we worked with how to react to someone who's really in their rebellion reaction to shame. And once again, it was, it was sort of counterintuitive for me, if I recall correctly. It was about honoring that they were someone who really valued that independence or autonomy. And, and once again, as you said about anger, recognizing that they are defending a need so that they can see that we value that need for them as well.
0: Yeah, I I love that. I love to when I'm in a good place myself to kind of acknowledge that. Wow, you really you're really standing up for this that you believe in. You're really willing to to risk a lot just because you're wanting to stand up for free choice or or whatever it might be. And it's a lovely place because it's I get the connection with them, but also with the free choice intact with them knowing that I I actually enjoy that they know that they have a choice. And for me, being a mediator, this is very often, very common in, in conflicts, that one person will move into the anger pole of the compass, and one would be in the rebellion, for example. And then, of course, they will not meet. <laughs> so for me to kind of honor the one that rebels, have empathy for the one that gets angry, usually I can help them come back to the core and to their need to, to connect, their need to belong. If it's a conflict that, for example, is in a relationship or a family, to come back to that. And then usually, then they can deal with the conflict themselves when they have connection on that level.
1: That That's what I really learned from your class. I was like, well, we're dealing with them to what end? And you said, to bring them into connection. And I discovered that the person i'm in a conflict with if i can really be in connection with them then we're going to come to a solution and it doesn't doesn't really matter exactly what that solution is it's more like okay we really see each other we really suddenly like see each other each other's needs we have that sense of mutual respect and equality and from this place how can we go wrong
0: yeah and it, it it's it's fun you you make it sound kind of easy <laughs> but it, sometimes it is easy and sometimes it's really really hard to create that connection but when we do it is kind of magical it is it's a weird thing of even imagining that you know one hour before we were totally disconnected when you feel connected you're like how can we not have been <laughs> because it's that seems like the most natural state to be in
1: Mhm. I mean I go into so many arguments thinking my goal is to win and that is it it antagonizes it 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 shames it doesn't meet the needs of the other person so to go into a conflict now with the awareness my goal is to connect. Like, once I get there, then the future is full of wonderful options for us to come to solutions for both of us. But it's really hard just to change that mindset, which I think I really get, you know, from, like, law and order. Like, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, and I need to come with the facts and the objective truths, and I need to win and, and just logically decimate someone. And that never works. <laughs>
0: Well, it does, it doesn't work for connection for sure. It yeah. might work for law and order and it might work for if you're having fun with it. When you have connection with a person, when you know that you can always go back to the bottom line will be connection, then you can argue. Then you can kind of try to outsmart each other. You can, you can kind of risk that, but then it's not a matter of I'm going to win over you to crush you. It's, it's the fun of the game. And then. Yeah, let's come back to connection to human beings.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Some people say, Oh, yeah, I cannot play football anymore because now I do this empathic connection. So I'm not just about connection and football is not about connection. Well, it is about connection in your team, but it's about winning, getting the goal there. But if you know that you, you can create the connection, you can also have fun with, with games and winning and so on because you know how to, to come back to humans.
1: That's a really powerful insight for me right at this moment, because I recently had a an argument with a roommate, and it was like we were both arguing as if there was a jury present, trying to convince the jury, and none of our arguments were really hitting the other person in any meaningful way. But it, it is fun, because, you know, I, I do like logic, and I do like that kind of argument, but at a certain point, I think I was just like, can we just talk like, can we just talk as humans? And we did kind of almost accidentally in that moment come to some connection. And then it was a lot, it was a lot more playful and a lot more productive because we actually were willing to hear each other. So it was sort of like an, an inexpert example of what you're describing.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. It's a good description, like playing with those mindsets, not being scared of being, you know, again, not not trying to be perfect in any, any way, but trying to always remember that core of humanness, then we can do a lot of stuff.
1: I also found it kind of counterintuitive when we did the exercises where we tried to work with someone who was in attack self which i also see sometimes attack self connects to people pleasing which is something that i have done a lot in my life where i'm like oh i'm such an idiot and then i'll externalize that by being like you know what don't even listen to me like i don't know what i'm talking about like never just ignore me and and i really just sort of like submit to these these other people in the hopes that they will you know, keep the connection alive at any cost and i've and once again, I found it kind of counterintuitive how you talked about dealing with that situation. I wonder if you could explore that with me now,
0: yeah, it was almost like a shock for me when I discovered how many times when someone is attacking themselves that I would of course turn into trying to be with them. They seem so so sad and so. <laughs> so crushed and i would say oh you know come on you're a good person or i would hear try to hear them and and so many times i felt like i was nurturing a black hole like this person whatever empathy guess, whatever compliment whatever it would just be sucked into this black hole of i am nobody i am nothing i am bad and It was kind of a shock when I realized that many times they do this because they want to avoid the shame and they don't know better. It's not like they're doing it to avoid taking responsibility consciously, but they will be much better off when they can usually hear someone else's opinion. So instead of believing that, yeah, there's something wrong with you, actually hearing other people's opinions about things they do that is liked uh, or disliked, whatever. That they come out of that black hole where they kind of, it, there is even proof, well, to simplify it, that, that it's addictive. That it does, it's very, very close to parts in a brain that is nurturing addiction when we are uh, blaming ourselves. Wow. We get into that loop.
1: Yeah, I sensed when we were doing the exercises that I was almost trying to get that person to empathize with me instead of me trying to empathize with them.
0: And that is such a when it works. Like when I do mediation, and someone gets really into, yeah, it's all my fault. Blah, blah, blah. So then I would usually say, "Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that in a moment, where you see your responsibility is, but I first like you to hear the other person." can you hear what this person is going through due to what happened between you? So I kind of pull their ear, have them hear someone else, have them see reality in a a bigger version than in their small black hole that they're stuck in. And usually we don't even have to come back to what I said we're going to come back to. There's no need for it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So it's very counterintuitive. It's, I mean, most of us will try to kind of comfort that person. And of course, it's not always if someone is attacking themselves that they're avoiding shame, but usually there's a layer of shame there that will not be transformed by being comforted.
1: Perhaps the most difficult, I thought, of all the points on the compass to deal with was withdrawal. That, that seemed to be the one that we were all really struggling with. I wonder if you could talk about that.
0: Yeah. And it, it, and it, it can trigger all kinds of emotions when someone dear to you or someone in your workplace, if someone is withdrawing, it seems like people are feeling ashamed. For example, if a good friend of theirs is withdrawing, they don't want to speak with them. They feel shame. And then they go into, you know, my friend disappears and I go into, Oh, it's probably my fault. <laughs> yeah. I probably did something wrong. So we kind of get stuck in not knowing how to reach out. And also when someone is silent, withdrawing silently, sometimes we're so stuck in trying to understand their words that we kind of try to force them to speak. And it's the last thing they want to do. They don't want to express. They kind of given up. They want to kind of be reminded that they have some power that they they don't know that they have anymore. So we get stuck into, you have to say something, otherwise I cannot understand you. But of course we can understand. We can understand a the dog, they never speak to us in words. And we can understand when they're in pain, we can understand when they're restless and so on. So of course we can do that with a person. So it, it takes kind of a lot of creativity and, and inner space, I'd say to be with a person that is withdrawing from shame. But what they need usually is to be reminded that it does matter that they come out of their their withdrawal. It does matter that they come out in the relationship with others again.
1: I saw working with someone in withdrawal, the word resourcing came to mind, sort of like giving them back uh, a reminder of their own strength, of of their power, of the things that you know i've uh, respected about them putting themselves out there in the past like that that kind of stuff seemed to kind of work in the exercises we did
0: yeah that they kind of get they get sober in some way with being reminded of that also it's it's an illusion to believe that they don't have a power but it's because it's very very clear that they have power right in that moment because someone is trying to connect with them but they they cannot see it of course mhm yeah and the withdrawal position is kind of tricky because it's this it's this acute loneliness where I would say for thousands of years, for hundreds of thousands of years as a human species, it meant death, it meant no food, no warmth, no shelter, no people, so our system is kind of in shock, even. When it's small moments of withdrawal, it's like a shock to the system of the risk of now we will be abandoned. We will be outside the group. And that's not a light thing. It's, it's a, it has a big impact. And I can see it with kids in, in, you know, when you were the last one to be chosen for a game and that loneliness, that shame, that sense of cut off. It will stay. It can stay for days. It can stay for weeks. It can stay for years. We are so wired for connection. So when we don't have it, it's it has such an impact. So we need people usually to to help us out of there.
1: I think that's such an important message about shame for people to understand that when you got picked last for the team, and you might say, "I mean, it was no big deal." Like in the end, it, it wasn't a big deal. But really, I think it's important to honor. That to our system it is a big deal. To our system, it's life or death to some degree. And when I realize that, I have a lot more self compassion. I'm like, oh wow, like, hey body, we just you know had a brush with what we used to think was going to lead to our death. So yeah, no wonder that this hurts. So, you know, I, I get it, and I find that keeping in mind that it is a big deal. You know, even if a stranger on the internet sends a mean comment, I want to honor that that's a big deal to my system, that that's a big deal to my instincts.
0: And that's where that reclaiming of power and choice comes in to kind of know, yes, my system had that reaction. <sighs> Take a breath, noticing, honoring that, and then saying, okay, so now what I want to do? Instead of saying, well, I'm a mature, modern person and I don't have that. But we we have a very old, ancient body system that we need to kind of befriend and bring into the future. And we do that through that care.
1: One thing that I love about the compass as well is that I, even though it's a bit roundabout, I like to reverse engineer what I learned in your class in terms of dealing with someone on the compass and then see myself. So, if I see that I'm in anger and blame, I can think, okay, well, if I was dealing with someone in anger and blame, I would give them empathy. So what I'm really looking for is some empathy to make it clear that these people recognize this important need. And so it's like a circuitous route to do what I think you're encouraging us all to do, which is to use shame to get back to what is my most important need in this moment. And then I can I can say, you know, like, I'm in anger. What I would love is if someone could give me a little empathy around these needs that I feel are threatened. Can can someone hear me out right now and just try to be really clear about what I really need?
0: Yeah, I love that you see that many people don't, don't, don't see that they can actually do this also themselves. I remember when I first recognized it, I was in a in a training where I had a really hard time, I was leading this training and I couldn't kind of connect to the group. I felt all kinds of self-attacks. I was not happy about what I did. And I I, I tried all kinds of things. I was meditating, I was giving myself empathy, and 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 I still felt kind of cold and numb inside. And then from somewhere, I think I got inspired from somewhere, I can't remember. I realized I need appreciation. I need someone to acknowledge because some part of me had submitted. Some part of me had given up. Like I will just suffer through these three days of training and and then it will be over with. I don't have to see these people again. So instead, I called a friend of mine and I asked him, can you please tell me two things that you have seen me do or heard me say or so that made a difference for you? can you please tell me that? Because I don't know how to connect with myself. And that's my like last straw of hope that that could bring me back. And he told me one thing that I already kind of knew that he appreciated. And that helped a little bit. And then he said one thing that I didn't have a clue about, that it had an impact on him, that he really felt supported by. And I could feel that whole part of me that was kind of frozen and cold and given up how it became warm and soft and alive again just by that it probably a phone call of three or four minutes and now i know that when i withdraw that's what i need to do i need to get from somewhere from myself from from the outside some reminder that i have power to contribute to life with that i have forgotten
1: wow I love that so much that you can see your own needs and just really clearly reach out and say, this is what I'm needing. Can can someone offer this? It's so, it's so simple and beautiful and yet quite counterintuitive that we're allowed to go about meeting our own needs.
0: And of course, it's also scary because maybe this person says, no, I don't have anything to offer you. But I would rather, in that moment, I'd rather risk that, having that moment of shame, knowing I could always call someone else and try again. And that's where it comes in, this willingness to be dependent on something from the outside. And the next moment when I get a no, to go to independence. Okay, I didn't get it from this person. I'm independent, so I can ask from someone else. And then when I get... That confirmation, I can kind of relax into, yes, I am mutually dependent on others and they are also dependent on me. But I need to be able to kind of make myself larger and hold both that dependent part of me and that independent part of me to kind of be fully human.
1: Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm it's kind of a polarity isn't it between individuality interdependence and and riding that balance is the work of shame i think
0: yeah 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 that's what kind of is the the red line in all of this that i can see how much connected i am to life if it's there then i know i'm i'm on the path kind of
1: Mm -hmm. And I love that you named that we live in a world now where there are enough people that, you know, even if you run out of friends to call, you can still say, I'm going to make new friends. I'm going to keep going until I find the people who can see my truth and and accept it. Because I know that as a social animal, that's going to create a sense of connection and belonging for both of us that's going to feel amazing. I wonder if we could talk for a minute about the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially listeners of this podcast, will know the definition You know that Brene Brown uses of shame being, I'm a bad person, and guilt being, I did a bad thing. But what I love about your book is that you have a definition of guilt being a conflict between two or more needs, and I find that is so true, and I'd love for you to talk a bit about that.
0: Yeah. I, I used to hate guilt even more than I hated shame for, for some years. And only when I realized that when I feel guilt, it's because I care. People that feel guilt, they feel guilt because they care. They have a heart. They, people matter to them or alive beings matter to them. So for me, guilt is like a sign of something healthy, some healthy care. And then, the next thing, when we have recognized that when we've kind of taken a breath into our guilt and says, "Okay, I feel guilt because at one hand I care, and then I can create some space inside and say, "Yeah, and it also means I have something else
2: mm-hmm.
0: and there's that like I call it the torn place, the torn place where I want to do I want to go with that care I have for others and I also have this other need for rest or for meaning or for fun or whatever it might be that I'm now kind of not seeing how I can have both. In this very moment, I'm in a smaller box than life needs to be living fully. So then I can I work on that. I try to give more space and to acknowledge also that other need. Both the need for care and contribution and wanting the best for people, but also wanting the best for me, which might be a different, uh, many different things depending on the, the situation. Mm-hmm. So, so what I find kind of magical is the more I learn to honor that, yes, I'm in this dilemma. I'm in this torn place that doesn't have a right answer. It doesn't even have a morally right answer. <laughs> It's just a dilemma. And I'm riding that wave of mystery of how will it unfold. When I honor that, it seems like there's more creativity and usually more choice. Mm -hmm. It seems easy when I say it, but I do believe it's easy. And it might take some training and some time and some acknowledgement.
1: Yeah, you had us do an exercise where we started by... Just being honest about, I'm in a torn place, which is something that is really vulnerable for me. You know, I want to just appear perfect and not ever have any, you know, uncertainty. So to be asked to do something by someone and then feel that guilt and just say, I'm torn is vulnerable. But also it like, it, it does create space and time to just like, Hey, let's just explore the tornness and see what comes out of that.
0: Yeah, it's quite fascinating that it seems like there are so many people. I mean, I do this training all over the world. I do it in different places. And It's amazing how similar that place is inside, if we can name it, that, ah, I am feel torn. I want for you to have what you're asking for. And I'm torn because I cannot see how I can give it to you at this moment. It it really connects us to also to humanness in not being perfect, not always having like I have a yes or I have a no and it's clear and it's no, it's this being willing to stay with dilemma of being human. And it seems like a very common commonplace. Even just practicing that, getting request from someone that you at one hand want to say yes to and at one hand you want to say no to.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And I, I did a role play in your class that you were there for that was really powerful where I had someone who was often asking me for something I didn't want to give. And then by just exploring the torn place, I had a real emotional epiphany. And from that place, I suddenly desired to be more in connection with this person. And I guess I was afraid to reveal to them I didn't know if I wanted to even hang out with them. And by revealing that, I suddenly did <laughs> want to hang out with them. So it was like it was the withholding of something uncomfortable that was stopping me from wanting to connect with them. And by being honest, I suddenly had all this space to want to connect with them now more authentically.
0: And it's also that torn place I hear when, you, with your example. It's that you creating that deeper trust with yourself, that you will stand up for the torn place or the no in you, the place that doesn't know, do I want to really? And you will honor that and you will listen to that. Then you can also listen to the full yes because you are not going to, you know, cheat yourself. You're not going to create more distrust inside, but holding your, the fullness of your answer.
1: Mm-hmm. What I'm realizing is that I was resenting them because I wasn't fully meeting my own needs. And somehow I was blaming them for that. But really, you're right. It's about trusting myself and being able to say, I am going to honor all parts of me.
0: Oh, I think that's so common, that we resent others because we don't know how to put boundaries of words or an image to our inner being. So then it's easier to blame the others so so that we don't risk that not not giving full space to ourselves and we can probably go on for layers and layers of this and just i just so much enjoyed to talk about this with you at this moment
1: yeah, me too. It's such a treat to talk to someone who is so interested in shame and so knowledgeable about shame. It's it's such a rare treat for me. So I'm just like really grateful for you agreeing to come on the podcast. And yeah, we could talk forever. But I I feel like this is probably a good place to wind down. I wondered if you could let us know how people could find out more about your books, find out more about your work. I know you do lots of different courses around, especially in Europe, around mediation, around nonviolent communication, around shame. And I've done a bunch of them and I highly recommend them. So maybe you could just give yourself a little plug so that our audience knows how they can get in touch with you and follow your work.
0: Yeah, the easiest way would probably be to connect through my newsletter. I have a Swedish one, as my native tongue is Swedish, but I guess your audience is mostly English speakers. So you will find that through my website, where there's also trainings and my books. And that is f r i a r e l i v Dot .com. I don't know if if I spell that I always find English spelling a bit challenging but I do believe it's that's the. And then yes and I also oh, most of my books are also on the website that is called www.leevlarson.com.
1: I'll put some links in the show notes as well so that people can go and find that information. And I just can't recommend enough to the audience exploring this work and exploring nonviolent communication, which is such a great kind of counter shaming philosophy and conflict resolution style that um you know I I came to N V C through shame and it sounds like you leave came to shame through NVC so there really is like some connection there.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're more mature than me,
1: I believe. <laughs> I don't know about that, but that sounds like a great place to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs>